Aloha mai kākou, I'm tuning into the Kyle Thierman Show from the University of California, San Diego. Spending most of my time researching human environmental interactions, I'm extremely excited to see the surf industry as a whole move closer to more environmentally conscious products. Mahalo. That was a message from Brada Cliff Capono. If you have a message that you want played at the beginning of my show, be it something you're excited about, an upcoming project or beach cleanup that you want support with, or just a message to a community of a few thousand people, you can send it to me. Use voice memos. It's uh, just recorded on your phone and email it to me. My email's kyle at kyle.surf. Keep it under 20 seconds. Bonus points if it's hilarious or if you're tuning in from someplace especially awesome. This episode of the show is with Hawaiian surf legend Jock Sutherland. Jock is considered one of the 50 greatest surfers of all time. He is well known for being one of the early surfers to go both regular and goofy foot at the pipeline. And the wave Jockos on the North Shore of Oahu is named after him. We recorded this podcast at his house late at night over a couple of beers. He lives right out front, Jockos. I really enjoyed just listening to this guy. He has so many stories. And it was a real honor to sit down with him. And if you have an opportunity to sit down with someone who's a little older... Just take the time to do it. Let me tell you, because these people have such good stories. And if you can just like not be in a rush, you know, like just smoke some weed or just clear the afternoon and you will gain such rich knowledge from these people. So ask yourself, who's someone who's a little older in your life who you could sit down with and hear their stories? This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. If you get value out of these conversations, if you if you value me talking out of my ass for extended periods of time, please donate. Head over to my website, Kyle.surf. Whatever you can donate, five bucks, ten bucks, twenty bucks, it really does help and it keeps this show going. If you are strapped for cash and you don't have money, other ways that you can support the show are to give it a rating on iTunes or Stitcher. Or share it with a friend if you like one of the episodes and you want to pass it along. That's how we keep this going. All right. Here is Jock Sutherland and me talking on the North Shore of Oahu. Kyle Thierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. What would you say you're enjoying about your surfing most right now? Maybe realizing that uh, there's there's ways that I'm backing out of that I that I shouldn't, and you know when they go by, people are looking, giving me that quizzical look, like, "Hey, you know, last year you weren't doing that," and so it's a it's a realization that that I need to 
to cope with and, and I find myself okay you know I've got I've got the wind to be able to handle the wipeout which is you know a real basic part of, of surfing a little bit larger waves that if you can't handle the wipeout you shouldn't be out there but so I, I, I try to push myself but I'm also realizing okay you know I need to spend a little bit more time in the water you know, or build up my wind a little bit but the most enjoyable thing maybe is still to be able to you know ride a little bit you know to, to challenge myself but to you know uh, be sociable with the people who are out in the water and it's not be out there just for the surfing you know but also try to share or if somebody's you know having a little harder time to be able to give them waves you know or or not take off on a wave that you could catch because you see the guy inside of you on a smaller board so it's basically maybe more of a a harmonious uh phase in in my surfing that that um I'm either growing into or backing into right now. <laughs> so, it, it, I, I, you know, I, I could be pushing a little bit more as far as, um, you know, pulling into the tube. You know, I try not to be out in the green water and waste the wave, you know. Uh, so I would say the most enjoyable thing is probably just um, being able to still be out there and be able to have uh, the ability to, to take off on a, a fairly critical wave, not you know, not a, a Jaws type wave, or not a an outside outside reef kind of a wave, or not a, a slab kind of wave, or not a low tide twelve foot pipeline bomb. You know, if, if pipe pipe can be actually user friendly when it's six or eight feet out here in front, it can be user friendly when it's eight or ten feet. Yeah, but it can be mean too. It so can. Yeah. Well, it's a heavy wave. It, it can be. Yeah. I surfed Jocko's three times today, and got pounded got absolutely flogged a couple times so that is a a fairly profound outlook that you have on your surfing and i think that it's something that a lot of people aspire to is there something that you say to yourself before you paddle out every time you go surfing mm. Not necessarily a conscious uh, saying or or you know wording it to myself in my mind, but uh, you know it, there's a couple of bigger ones out there. You know, or is it is it going to be fun or is it going to be a, a tough thing? You know, for you. And so I, I try to get it settled in my mind. Okay, I'm going to try to have a good time out here. You know, there's a few things that you need to keep an eye out for. Yeah. But uh, yeah, basically, when I don't do as much stretching when I go down there, you know, I try to drink some water and do a little bit of limbering up and sometimes um you know i'll do some minor minor stretches before i go out although i, I could do a little bit more which will kind of get you in tune what kind of stretches do you do um you know just uh maybe you know a little bit of rotation maybe some shoulder loosening up maybe a little bit of uh, toe touching or, or or you know uh grabbing your calves and trying to you know stretch down that way mm. or you know a little bit of um side to side kind yeah of just getting the body moving yeah 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 nice how do you say you spend the first hour of your day um making making some phone calls trying to get my working day set up or um my you know uh trying to incorporate uh, getting a surf in if the waves are good along with uh some of my other uh commitments obligations that uh almost always come up yeah yeah, it seemed like you had a busy day today. What were yeah. you What were you working on today? Um, repairing this gal's roof in town, where the architect hadn't designed the the garage 
the garage's relationship to the rest of the roof, so the water coming off the roof. Okay. It, was, it was the one that was built back in the 30s. It was uh, uh, very old, old style, and it's like a, a, on the historic register, so she gets a good, nice tax break, this gal does, who I've known for... What does that mean? That's because if the house is old enough and it's uh, like an antique or it's like a relic from the old days that uh, you can get a, a consideration of that from the historical society. Um, which which registers your house along with uh, a bunch of other houses that are of of that age or style. And you get a tax break because of that. Yeah, yeah. So they encourage people in Hawaii to keep old dwellings for historical significance. Yes, if, if they're of, of that style, you know, not necessarily just the age, but the but the style and you know the uniqueness of, right, of right. the structure and so she had been getting some water like um coming off of the garage we we tried to jury rig a diverter system but um because the plywood that we were using we, we didn't cover it with something waterproof the water was tending to climb back in underneath the plywood and and back uh, on between the garage and her house and she has this wonderful old siding and so it was actually starting to show in her living room Wow. You know, on the bottom. Right, right. This nice, nice comb cedar original stuff. It must be quite an experience for you growing up here and being a roofer, seeing the progression and the change through people's roofs. Well, Is that yeah. at all on track? Yeah, because, you know. How long have you been doing this as a, as a roofer? That's your. Since 73. Since 73. Yeah, so basically like 40, 44 years or so. So what? It, it's a tough trade, but but it's 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 good money. People say to me, you know, why why don't you retire and just sign the checks? And I say, well, there's two reasons. One reason is that people tell me, don't just send your guys. We want you on the job. And the second reason is, actually, there's three reasons. The second reason is that um, I I can you know I I can I can still do a fairly good job. I'm still capable of it, and, and it's a good you know you're outdoors. It's it's yeah. it's a it's a good thing. To, it's a good way to feel productive. But also because uh, for the first 20 years I you know I was still basically learning you know becoming a journeyman. Right. Not not an expert by you know I'm still learning, but it's like I, I can I've gotten to the point in the past 10 years where I can make more than. 30 40 bucks an hour yeah and so the money's too good you know and, and um, I'm not a millionaire I'm not you know anywhere near a rich man except for the, you know in figurative senses yeah but so, so um, at this point if I can roof until I'm 75 years old well, what the heck you know I, I mean naturally I'm tapering off I'm not carrying up 100 pound rolls up the two-story ladder yeah. very often just no. 80 pounds or something well to <laughs> still not too often of them either if I can help it we get to try to get the conveyor belt to do most of the work. But if I absolutely have to, I can, but I'd rather not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, man, I kind of just want to hear North Shore stories from you. This isn't the way that it normally goes, but you have so many stories. Are there any that you haven't told in media so far? Well... I probably alluded to a couple of them or mentioned to other people that were in the media, but stuff like um, when I was just starting to surf Waimea and uh, like, you know, semi-consistently, like say 1967, 68. Actually, this one one instance was uh, in probably in the fall of 66 or early, uh, early 67, either December or January uh, in that time frame where... 
because the older guys um, knew, maybe knew my mom or dad, but or, or knew me personally, um, that they would take me under their wing. Buzzy Trent, you know, Greg. I worked for Greg Noll. I worked for Hobie and Bing. And what uh, did you do for them? Um, small stuff, you know, like for Hobie, who was my first, my first surf, surf, surfing uh, manufacturer employer. I basically was rubbing out some of the first box fins, nice. you know, just, just taking the burrs off them and spraying them with silicone, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. Got to play baseball with the guys at the factory, people like the Patterson brothers, you know, who are just classics, you know, back from the 40s and 50s, guys that would sand surfboards in their shorts with a cigarette hanging out of their mouth, you know, and then big clouds of glass dust there, you know. So, but nowadays you don't do that. But yeah. um, uh, when when I when I got to, and this was in the, right after I graduated from high school, I graduated in the summer of 66, and, uh, and for the next couple of years I would go over to California. I had a cousin that was over there in a, as a lifeguard in Del Mar, and then he moved up to Seal Beach, and I, I followed him and stayed with him. And uh, so in the in the fall of 66, Brewer had shaped a, a harbor surfboard for me that was like a, uh, a, my first well-shaped big wave board. It was like a, a 10-4 or a 10-5, you know, which was pretty big, but it was one of these boards that were magic. It was full rail. I mean, full, full, you know, uh, not not fat, but nowadays, you know, yeah. nowadays people go, oh, that's What would you say the dimensions were on it? Um, maybe, maybe 20 and a half, m- maybe 21 wide. And, um, you know, uh, the, the nose was, you know, not real pointy like yeah. a lot of guns are. And the tail was like a, um, squash tail or something, but, um, it, it could ride like five or six foot waves as well as 20 to 25 foot waves. Did and it have an airbrush on it? No, it just had some big red panels on the rails and a big old stringer in the middle, you know, the stock stuff. And it was fairly heavy, but uh, Burr had shaped a board like that for David Nueva and uh, for my friend Jimmy Lucas. And they were they were magic boards. They were very, very, very good boards. But um, Jose, Jose Angel, when I was out at Waimea, it was like a west swell. It was almost as good as Waimea can get, and it was good size. Actually, some waves, <clears throat> there's a picture in one of my mom's books her second book called Paddling Hawaii that uh, shows me sitting in the channel watching this guy back out of a wave because it was fringing all the way into the middle of the bay. So there's waves that almost looked like they were closing out, but because of the direction, it was like a west swell coming. It would come in from the west, and then it would hit the ledge there at Waimea, and then it would turn, and it would start to peel, yeah. almost like a giant Honolulu Bay. And and Jose, Jose um, came in, and Jose told me, and I didn't know at the time that he was uh, notorious for doing that. So he, he, he would get people to take off with him because he was able to handle big, you know, uh, heavy wipeouts because he was a good diver and he would actually go, yeah. go out to pipeline to, to practice, you know, getting wipeouts, see if he could handle them. And he said, come on, Jack, this is a good one. So I, yeah, you sure? yeah, yeah, okay, Jose. So I took off in front of him and uh, I, I went regular foot on this and there was a picture in the paper um, that I saw once or twice and I... Uh, I think I think Jose's um, Jose's widow um, <coughs> Moselle um, might have a copy of it, so I have to go talk to her. I talked to him. when you'd go surf YMA, would you decide wave by wave whether to go regular or goofy? Yeah, if it, if it was a good wave, I would. Uh, you know, if it was a fairly 
simple way to, to get into early, then perhaps I'd go regular foot because it was a better way to trim to face the wave. And, uh, and there's even a picture in Pacific Vibrations, I think, on the earlier, some of the earlier shots where I drop in goofy foot and I get to the bottom and I switch feet at the bottom. And it wasn't very well advised because I had lost all speed by then. I just got eaten up. <laughs> right. Yeah, the second you get to the bottom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you already want to be turning you yeah. know, as you're dropping in instead of piddling around switching feet. But okay. So what do you still switch your stance? Oh, yeah. All, all the time? Not all, but like um, there's a lot of ways where I, I will on purpose. Yeah. Like say at Pipeline, if a real nice backdoor wave comes in, I'll, I'll switch feet on or Lania Kea, big Lania Kea. Yeah. I can go a little faster going front side. What is stronger for you, would you say? Well, <clears throat> naturally, goofy foot is stronger because it's a natural one, but because, okay. because I've been doing it for like basically 50 years that that um it, it it feels comfortable wow going going regular foot when did you decide that you wanted to um be able to surf both ways maybe when i was about 14 or so 15 watching butch van hartstein on surf holly and waimea and sunset you remember the day that you decided that you were going to try it movie. for the first time probably well at holly on a s- small day cutting back you know i'd, I'd be going left goofy foot and then i just kind of ease into you know an, an old clunker balsa board that i had just ease into a regular foot and then finally i started doing it at chuns a little bit you know figuring out how you know how e- so you'd how switch mid wave yeah yeah probably mid- well down at the bottom and already in trim so that the board wasn't going to do anything funny you know and not just not dropping in yeah you know or decide beforehand and i got to the point where i could d- decide beforehand you know yeah. To, to to switch feet, you know, before I took off. Yeah. And then that that became a little became a little more comfortable. But I've actually had the misfortune of not being able to decide when I was taking <laughs> off which way to go and just gone uh, so tea, tea kettle, you know, because right. it's too late. Right, you know? right, right. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh no! Got, <laughs> yeah, most people just have to make the decision whether or not they're going to go on the wave. Yeah. You got to make the decision if you're going to go and what direction you're going to stand yeah, up. Yeah, so usually you want to commit before you get to <laughs> right. that point. So it's been so you'll be sitting in the lineup saying, "All right, next wave, I'm going to go regular foot." Yeah, or or. Um, not necessarily next wave, but seeing the wave coming in and going, okay, this one looks like it's lining up a lot, and I need to go. I need to go regular foot, or I'm not going to make it. Yeah. Hey, can I get you a beer? I'll get it. I'll right, get it. Don't worry. And if you want, I can. Uh, What's that? If you want, I can heat up some of that meat. Oh, I'm Ripple. okay. Thank You're you okay? so much. Okay. All right. No, Here we go. It. Do you want a glass for yours? No need. No, I'm good. Okay. There we Let's are. Crack it. Keep story time going. Okay, so switching feet, yeah, uh, and did you ever get heckled growing up switching feet? No, no. People loved it. Yeah, yeah. That's great. So few people do that now, but there's, it seems really good. For, it seems yeah. like it's really good for your mm-hmm. brain. I broke my left arm uh, a number of times skateboarding, and I'm left-handed. Oh, and the month or two that I had to learn how to do operate with yeah. my right hand. Yeah was difficult really, it was difficult but it was easier stimulating to for it was brain, easier yeah. to learn than mm-hmm. i thought it would be and it was stimulating for the brain it's one of those those things that it feels good it it 
it actually has a brain to hand feeling of like, ooh, wow, you, you need to think about using your fork with your opposite hand. And to do that, um, I am convinced that it probably helps um, with with not here I am uh, talking about Alzheimer's saying so, oh, yeah. I'll bet you it helps with with well, Alzheimer's yeah they say that um, the people that use you know use their brain more are yeah. less likely to to come down with Alzheimer's because their brains are getting stimulated more. yeah you seem <laughs> like you take that to heart yeah well it's like they, they say even small stuff like say for me I, I brush my teeth mostly with my right hand but because it's you know, because brushing on your right side and going backhand, it's much easier to use your left hand. And probably earlier on, early on, like 30 years ago, I found that because I help, used to help paint the house here, that when you're painting the ease, you're doing overhead painting, your hand, because your hand's not used to doing up overhead stuff, it gets tired, you know, to the point of cramping. Right. And so if you can spell yourself with, by using your other hand, that, you know, even though it's only 75% as efficient, it helps a tremendous lot. Same wow. thing as when you're working on a roof to, to alternate, you know, your, if, if, instead of, like, I stand a lot, you know, to do the roofing. So you have to be careful about, uh, yeah. you know, getting a back strain because you're bending over and, and whatnot. But, uh, you know, I can also sit or, or, or kneel. Yeah. So it's like they say Betty Edwards um, was a, a good artist and she wrote a very famous book for the art world about 30 years ago called uh, Drawing from the Right Side of the Brain a lot of people most people are left-brained but uh, artists and mathematicians you know to a large extent are right-brained and uh, she would have you know like uh, pictures in her book of uh, a, 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 a print of a Picasso on it's upside down and hmm. you were told okay the teacher would tell you, okay, draw this painting upside down. Yeah, because you weren't used to doing right. that. that it, you know, it stimulated other parts of the brain. Yeah, it's so helpful. Um, but her son actually made a living of uh, going around to big companies and teaching them to think outside of the box and, uh, and using the, the right side of their brain to, to solve problems. And, and he is making a pretty good living. has been doing it for like uh, five or ten years. And so he's basically teaching company. Okay. He's like, all right, Google, I'm going to charge you $200,000 for a conference. Mind-blowing stuff. Yeah. yeah. Do everything yeah. with your opposite hand. Well, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, you know, <laughs> necessity is the mother. I'm, no, I'm, I'm joking. But, well, it, but it, yes, yeah, it, it is, it's those simple, <clears throat> those simple things that we do that can be so profound. Um, so right now I'm doing... Uh, an online course and I'm doing it with some of the guys over at the house called the Wim Hof method. And it's a breathing technique that, uh, helps immunity and it has all kinds of positive benefits like being able to withstand cold longer, being able to hold your breath longer, but it's simply deep breaths. And these, I believe that these simple, um, techniques, techniques that are given to us are the most effective. As you as you say, simple things like using your opposite, um, <clears throat> you using your less strong um, hand. Well, also, you can you can take the simplicity from lessons like um, Tibetan Buddhist yeah. teachings, and they teach you you know the how you know like a lot of Western society teach you know you, you want to have the pain the pleasure but not the pain you want to have the credit but not the blame you know you want to have 
you want to have all the good stuff, but none of the other stuff. It's the dharmas, the four dharmas. Right. And uh, one of the things they teach you is this breathing technique called tonglen, which is it's it's basically you're you're, you want to exhale fully. It's a yoga thing, too. If you don't exhale fully, your diaphragm doesn't lower fully. And so what you have is air in the bottom of your lungs that's not used. And so your your, your abdominal sheath is straining. And, and so wow. you're not getting... You're not, you're so not it's going to do a complete exhale. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some people have air in the bottom of their lungs. They All the way in. For, yeah. Yeah. Some people have like 30-year-old air in the bottom of their lungs. And so that and, you know... 30 uh, Wow. Yeah, yeah, because they have, they've never, they're always breathing shallowly. Yeah, but um, the, the other part of the technique is that it's a it's an empathy thing where you, when you're when you're inhaling, you're trying to uh, inhale, you're trying to breathe in. One of the phrases is the black bag of all the the negativity and the toxicity and and the pain and sorrow of everybody else in the world. Not necessarily everybody, but you know, if you it can make it specific, then you're encouraged to do so. You know, make it simple. If if someone you know you know or you have a, a painful thing going, you you're trying to you're trying to take that off of them, and yep. then and then when you're exhaling, you're, you're trying to breathe light or a solution in into that into that person's life. You know, I mean not directly yeah. having them sitting in front of you but it's just your thinking and what that does is it, it creates you know a sense of harmony um, with your ability to perhaps you know um, be a healer they say that people yeah. a Maori fellow told me that uh, if you ever dream of flying that the Maori people believed that that was when you were going to help somebody heal Wow. <laughs> so there's all these things in, in oh, different cultures. Oh, I dig culture. it. Yeah. I love yeah, flying yeah. dreams. Well, there you have it, you yeah. know. So there's all these different cultures that, you know, if you try to empathize with them, like, you know, if you're trying to speak a little bit of Hawaiian or realize that what they went through 200 years ago still exists in their psyche today, you know, 200 years is not a long time. Not a long time at psyche. all. No, and so in their, in their dreams, you know, and in their hearts and souls, there's still this bitterness in there, and it's completely understandable why it's there. Yeah, you know, and and some of the residual, like to give you a really good example, um, Hawaiian was pretty much forbidden to be spoken in public schools for a period of sixty or eighty years. Yeah, and this lady that I met, uh, um, I helped my friend Dwayne DeSoto do a, a kids uh, ocean skills program called Nakamakai, the, the children of the ocean, and teaches them you know celestial navigation and lifeguard signage, and we take them stand up boards and canoe rides and. We, you know, we have a lot of local kids, you know, local parents, you know, and, and because I'm Caucasian looking, you know, they're naturally somewhat not stand, standoffish a little bit, you know, not necessarily suspicious, but they're kind of, eh, you know, you're going to take my kid out there, you know, and right. on a board and, you know, and but, you know, because Dwayne, we have a little uh, get together, a pulley, you know, a little prayer circle yeah. b- before we start out and Dwayne explains everything, you know, wh- why we're doing it because Dwayne... Is, is part of and he's got a lot of his, his his uncles there helping with the canoes so there's a lot of, and he's been doing it for five years or so six years so I'm happy to be a part of it and uh, Hawaiian Airlines donated a canoe to him Duke's restaurant donated a canoe to him so he's got got credence now and so the local folks you know now that he's kind of established his reputation and we've been pretty safe you know we've had an injury or two you know where a, a, a child is 
maybe swallow a little water or not drunk enough, not hydrated enough, you know, right. he'll, he'll start to get a little faint, you know, so we, we, nothing real serious, yeah. but, you know, we've, so we've had a pretty good record, but it's, it's great to, you know. And what is the, what is this whole okay. program that you yeah. work on? It's, it's called, it's a, it's a free ocean skills, ocean safety um, class uh, every, every month, the second Sunday of every month or, uh, at about six different spots around the island, Pokai Bay, Waimanalo here in Haleiwa, Kahana Bay, uh, in town at Publix and whatnot. And uh, we've, had, we've had people working, like say in the social navigation part, um, that have gone through uh, Nainoa Thompson's uh, navigation program, you know, and they're yeah. like a couple of the, the top 10 of his 2,000 kids that have gone through the program and yeah. actually go on the boat. But going back to this, this lady, I'm talking about Hawaiian language and the residual bitterness that, you know, that I, that I, that I try to make, make clear to Hawaiian people in general, you know, even... What are you trying to make clear to them? That, that I empathize with, you know, what had happened and how, you know, how I would like to help you know ease that pain you know going back to the you were here early on what would you see growing up that you remember it um as far as bitterness in terms of bitterness and that pain that they're going through basically you know that they they would regard you because you're a white-skinned guy as part of the part of the problem you know part of the part of the bitterness and so you know they would you know lash out at you and so you needed to be ready to get the shields up you know or try to defuse it if you could if not you know then deal with it but this lady out here at Kahana Bay an elderly Hawaiian lady like 80 85 years old a year or two ago I asked her you know maybe uh, about her Hawaiian skills background she says I wasn't I wasn't I wasn't speaking Hawaiian I wasn't allowed to or you know that wasn't part of my life because it was forbidden in school so she had she had very little Hawaiian skills and I was just going oh. it just brought it home to me about exactly how you know and and it was still part of the hawaiian school system up until you know the, the late 60s and so you know it's, it's it was forbidden to speak native hawaiian until in, the late 60s yeah in, in the in the public schools and so a lot of hawaiian kids grew up you know chastised you know for speaking hawaiian and and so now with the hawaiian resurgence you know there, there's immersion schools where kids speak only hawaiian in yeah. the class and stuff and so yeah, I, I just saw a girl at Jamba Juice the other day, and I go, you know, what did you bring away from it? You know, she, we were talking a little bit about the language, and I told her, you know, how, how nice it was for me to learn a few phraseologies and try to, you know, understand, you know, w- w- you know, what the language, how the language has evolved, and how I could, you know, how handy it was for me to, you know, know a, a little teeny bit of it so I could recognize certain words and break them down and, you know, have some kind of idea, you know, people's names or street names or place names. Right. Wow. But, um, it must be quite an experience having grown up here and to see that yeah. shift. Yeah. What were the big things that you saw shift? Um, what, what were big, just big moments growing up here that stood out to you in terms of that, um, that reckoning, either with what has happened to Native Hawaiians and in the, pro- the progress that has been made? Um, since it was forbidden to speak Native Hawaiian in schools. Well... And countless other atrocities yeah. that happened throughout the ages. Well, back in the 50s and 60s when I was pretty young, there was no sense, immediate sense of, of things having been atrocious. You know, they were, they were submerged because the people that were in power did such a good job of, you know, denying 
the, the, the Hawaiian language, you know, trying to squelch it, you know, trying to keep it, you know, um, a, a non-utility thing, you know, a non-usable thing that they were so successful in it that, you know, from like the 1920s or 30s, you know, when the older folks that used to speak it, you know, at home and fluently, uh, were they, they, die, they were dying out that for, you know, 80 or 100 years that, you know, because it was so little of a tool that, you know, there was no sense of, of disenfranchisement until, you know, um, the, the grandkids of the people that used to speak it um, began to... So when did it become illegal? Do you know? Probably in the in the twenties. Wow! After the turn of the century, the last century. But uh, when I was growing up, you know, there was no real sense of you know because everything was fairly, fairly. You know, I grew up out here on the North Shore. You know, went to elementary school and everything, and uh, I didn't live in the city too much. And so there was, you know, a sense of community out here. You know, where everybody basically took care of everybody else. You could go and spend the night at somebody else's house. People didn't lock their doors, and you know, if you if you needed something you know your neighbors could help you out and uh, and we dove a lot you know for for fish to help to help bring home some stuff for the, for yeah. the table and if if you didn't bring home something from the ocean or the mountains then you it was rice and beans for dinner yeah, so being poor you know kind of helped you know everybody be on the same playing field but there was still the hierarchy of the people that owned a lot of a lot of the land the people that that um you know the, the big companies the big five big business companies in hawaii that owned a lot of the land and uh just when the when are the you guys, talking about the agrochemical companies yeah or the, yeah. Sh- or the sugar companies the big five the, the big five was what they were who they were known as these were the descendants of the missionaries and the people that were the businessmen that uh, took over a lot do you of know what land. names of the business yeah, like, uh, was it uh, dole and a few others like that yeah sanford dole's our descendants uh, alexander and baldwin um uh, amfac uh there were there were like yeah five big companies combine companies but the, mostly caucasians at, at the helm and only after the people started the japanese guys in in particular when they came back from World War II, they they became part of the the city government, and they, they decided, okay, you know, all these guys that are holding land here, you know, we want to try to tax them, you know, at their at their highest and best rate, you know, to get them to try to sell off their land so they couldn't hold it a lot, and so land started to to become offered to 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 local folks a little bit more okay. more readily. So it, it's a there's a book called Land and Power by by Gavin Dawes, and uh, this is after the book he wrote called The Shoal of Time. He was a Australian history professor, uh, professor of history at, at university. Very, very smart man, and he wrote a book called The Hawaiians, which is a good book to read too. Okay, but he was a good friend of our family. He used to come out and play chess here. What were the main crops that were grown when you were growing up here uh, on the North uh, Shore? Pineapple and sugar. Okay, pineapple. The the guys used to grow pineapple in the fields. You know, uh, half a mile up the hill here, and they'd have the pineapple trucks that actually come down the hill. And sometimes we yell out, the, the guys would be sitting on top of the big truck, all like, hey, guys, throw us one. Okay, here. You know, so they throw, yeah. us, throw us a pineapple. Lunch. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, 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 the security wasn't anywhere near what it is in the past 20 years. So we'd go, we'd, uh, you know, ride our motorcycles up in the mountains, you know, and, and you know, go, go harvest some passion fruit or mountain apples or, or you know, go hunting up there. Is it, was it in the same crops that are now a lot of the Monsanto crops up here? No, those are a lot of those are, are corn or uh, 
What are they? Yeah, so much corn, canola, and soy. Yeah. But I'm, I'm. The question is, was it the same land? Yeah, a lot of the same land. Yeah, a lot of the same. That land. the agrochemical companies use now. Yeah, and um, mostly it was on this. The whole, uh, most of the North Shore was owned by uh, uh, what used to be called the Wailua Agricultural Company, which turned into Dole. Oh, which owns okay. a lot of the pineapple up on up on the hill as well as the sugar cane down here. Even still, yeah. Um, were a lot of native Hawaiians living on the North Shore when you were growing up here as well? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but a lot of them had already intermarried with, say, Chinese or Portuguese, German, you know. Uh, um, yeah, Puerto Rican. A lot of those um, cultures had come over in previous generations. Yeah, yeah. Right? your Chinese, your your Portuguese, your. Filipinos, there's a lot of Filipinos in Hawaii, and so uh, when I was going to school, the kids of those people that were working for the plantation, uh, in the, the 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 parents of the kids that I went to school with were mostly all plantation workers. Right. And uh, there was a lot of probably half of my classes were Japanese, and maybe uh, half of the other half were Filipino, and very few Caucasians. <laughs> In like two Caucasians in, in a class of 30 pe- people. Where did you go to school growing up? Here at Wailua. What, what was the school like when you were going there? And what year were you in? Uh, the 60s. In the 60s. Yeah. What was it like? It, it, was, it was, you know, a little tough at first, but then they realized, oh, you know, he's, he, he can handle, you know, a few hits on the football field and stuff like this. You know, and they realized that, you know, I, I wasn't, you know, go crying to the teacher or anything like that. Occasionally I'd get, you know... Uh, a little bit of, in a little bit of trouble, you know, not consciously, but, you know, answering a little bit too technical of a question in English class, you know, like, what was the, what was the name of Alexander the Great's horse, you know, and I go, oh, I know, <laughs> now the kids be going, oh, fucking hell, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, they, they realized that, you know, that I wasn't doing it to show off, you know, which I could have, you know, kept my mouth shut a little bit more. But, uh, you know, the, most of the guys and, and the local guys that I went to school with, you know, that I still see around, and there's not that many of them, they, they you know, hey, you know, and, and a lot of things has got to do with having joined the Army, having volunteered for the service, because a lot of kids out here, you know, they, their parents didn't have money to send their kids to college, and so it was either trade school or the service. And because I, because I volunteered, then a lot, of the, a lot of the kids that, you know, I saw after I came back a couple of years later, they're going, hey, right on, you know. Yeah, and they respected you yeah, more yeah, for that. Yeah, 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 you're one of us, you know. And so, and even when I'm trying to get a roofing job, and it's for somebody that uh, had me recommended from somebody else, you know, they go, yeah, we heard you were an okay roofer. And then, you know, they're they're like lifers, you know. They're like the 25, 30 year service, you know. And they're they're like E7s or E8s, you know, all time sergeants, you know, the husband and wife both. And I go on, oh yeah, yeah, I volunteered back then. You what? You're one of us. <laughs> oh, oh, buddy. Brother. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's a good card to be able to pull out. But uh, I'm lucky because my mom was pretty upset because this is in 1970 when the Vietnam War was right in the middle and our reconnaissance wasn't too good. And if I had gone down to Vietnam, I you know, might not had a good chance to come back of not coming back. A friend of mine, actually, who was my bunkmate in basic training, I saw in Waikiki about cheese. 20 years later after I'd come back and I went Ernie Ja you know you know what what happened to the rest of our our, our unit and basically you know a lot of them went to Nam and you know their infantry didn't come back so, wow so I, I was lucky because I had a friend in Ventura um, who, who actually he's in Ventura now he, he originally was from San Joaquin Valley and uh, 
he was part of uh, the training affairs branch, which routes your orders when they come in from Washington. His name was Frank Sintes. And uh, he asked his NCO, you know, hey, can I you know, switch this guy's orders because I was being trained as a field wire repairman as a telephone pole climber, which if I had gone to Vietnam, as then uh, things wouldn't have been too good. So he, he's, I didn't ask him, you know, he just said he knew I was on post, you know, there in Fort Ord in California. And he said, he, he looked me up and he said, hey, you know, we're going to help you You're out. You're on post in Fort Ord in California. Yeah, right north of Monterey. That's right where I live. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Where? In Santa Cruz. You, know, uh, d- yeah, d- yeah. you don't want to name too many of these names. <laughs> Great. Oh, don't. I'm going to have to cut that one out. Well, no, it, it's, it's okay because Derek Dorner uh, talked with a lot of the guys there, there and they, they wanted me to actually come over there. And, and uh, my mom uh, had, a, had a movie made, a video made about her uh, Molokai uh, journey. And he said, yeah, you know, you should come up, you know, and, and they, they, they want you to show it up here. How would most people describe your mother? Mm. Outdoors woman, you know, she taught swimming, and uh, she took us, you know, up in the mountains, you know, it's, you know trail and mountain club uh, hikes and stuff like that. And she was um, a, a well-respected member of the community. You know, it was tough for her because my dad was in the fish and wildlife, and so he's out to sea a lot. And and because he was a surfer, you know, he wasn't that inclined to, you know, give mom as you know as much money as she needed to help run the family. You know, so he could have been a better dad. But, um, you know, I loved him still the same, but I only found out in retrospect, you know, that he, he you know, fell a little bit short of being as uh, understanding a, a dad as he could have been. You know, I saw him when I was in the Army in Monterey, and he had his boat, and he was telling me he was going to go up to Alaska Pipeline, you know, and do some business up there and stuff. But uh, he uh, was a career cigarette smoker, like a lot of our parents, you know, a lot of people of my age, our parents were you know my wife's my wife's dad you know, was an FAA guy and he was a career cigarette smoker and so you know back then not that much was known if any about you know the dangers of uh, the the uh, the expedited height of the of the nicotine you know the actual uh, you know the the, the 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 extent that the biochemists were told to do to to make the, the nicotine in, in the in the tobacco stronger right. to, to make it more addictive uh, the, the yeah people had no idea yeah, what was the movie called The Insider maybe with Russell Crowe and, and Al Pacino did you ever see that never you saw it you, you probably it, heard of it maybe it, it strikes a little chord but it, uh, Russell Crowe plays the biochemist in a big tobacco okay. company and Al Pacino is, is the guy from 60 Minutes is, he says hey come on you know you know, t- t- come on. We w- we want you to come on to break to, the story yes, and be so honest yes, about it. Yes, but right. uh, what what happened? I guess in reality was that Bill Wallace, uh, the tobacco companies who were a sponsor of 60 Minutes, found out that this company that this story was going to be run, and they told Wallace, "Uh, uh-uh, you can't run this." And so Wallace had to cut it out. But Russell Crowe was already outed. So wow! It cost him big time. His family, you know basically his career so he got he got shot down so it was a great movie yeah because it talks you know and then has a couple of clips of of the tobacco company executives you know the Liggett Myers and whatnot uh, guys being hauled up you know in front of uh, the congressional subcommittee and, yeah and they're going oh no we wouldn't we wouldn't you know alter the, the strength of, of the, the nicotine you know just, just yeah, when, it, when anyone thinks that corporations will not lie to them <laughs> all they need to do is look at the story of big yeah. tobacco well, that's one of them and another one is um the plastics industry oh yeah uh, how many guys were exposed to you know the chemicals in like in in the south 
you know, and and how you know the, the people know it, and they brought it up. They go, oh no, 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 <laughs> deny, 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 deny. You know. Yeah, as long as they can, they yeah. will. Yeah. Uh, because they're beholden to the shareholders, and yeah. they need to make them happy at all costs, and that's why. Never mind you a have few hundred you have workers. So many, yeah, and that's <coughs> why you have so many com- companies that are destroying the world. That's why you have a place um, up from Louisiana where we get most of our oil from called Cancer Alley, where all the oil pipelines go through, and everyone in that area has cancer. But or the Aaron Brockovich story. Oh, that's a great story. <laughs> that's a great movie. It is. Uh, yeah, there are countless examples, and it is good to have a sobering moment of reckoning that you're not always being told the truth by companies and then there's movies about um about people that are in the very highest levels of our government people like henry kissinger oh yeah and behind the scenes with uh with president ford and president nixon and how kissinger to preserve his own position of power would tell you would like an example is he told Richard Nixon yeah it's okay if we go you know into into Cambodia to be able to go around the Ho Chi Minh Trail you know to outflank them and stuff like this and it's okay to use Agent Orange and all this stuff but so those are all Kissinger's decisions uh yeah basically his to use Agent Orange is that right I I don't I don't think maybe his Okay. Maybe it was the, it was the Pentagon. So, what were decision. his decisions that he made? Uh, to 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 um, be able to go into Cambodia to to go um, uh, to go on the outside, you know, to, to circum to circumnavigate the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and and because that that happened, it set up the atmosphere in Cambodia for the Khmer Rouge to come to power. If you ever seen the movie The Killing Fields with Hang Noor. I have not, yeah, yeah. but I need to but not, not read the, up and watch up. Yeah, but the, the, the really good movie that you should see that I saw at um, the Academy of Arts about 15 years ago was called The Trials of Henry Kissinger, and it talks about his complicity. You know, I saw that one yeah. time. I did see it. Was, that's a documentary, right? Yeah, documentary. yeah, I did see that, but it was a long time ago. Yeah, like 10 years, 12 so years. So I forget. All I really retained from it was that, Henry Kissinger is a bad person. <laughs> Very bad. Very bad. Very bad. Like uh, during during um, uh, well, the, well, there's this there's the famous. Uh, what I remember Allende. from the documentary is that uh, they're getting interviews about him from other people. Yeah, yeah. And like there's the, the people that he paid the, paid, right, paid money the, to go down right, and, and assassinate these And there's these the, guys. the yeah. power quote right where it's like, like something along the lines of like. What is the ultimate aphrodisiac? People think it is love. No. Power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. And it's this woman being like, like, yeah. Sounds like Hitler. Henry told me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he has the um, the accent. Where's he from again? East German. East German. Supposedly... Either he or his his parents, you know, were very very good friends of the SS. I need to rewatch that one again. Oh, yeah. Because... uh, when our our tin or copper mining interests in Chile were perceived to be threatened, then then those guys, you know, that the the company's uh, executives went, you know, to to Henry Kissinger and and Nixon and said, hey, you know, the, these guys down in Chile, they're gonna take over our companies. You know, they have a they have a leftist being elected, uh, Salvador Allende. Yeah, and so <coughs> uh, in the movie, The Trials of Henry Kissinger, it has it has uh, Alexander Haig. And Kissinger being interviewed about, um, well, first they interviewed this guy who was the bag man. He was being given bags of cash to go down to Chile to hire people to 
try to assassinate Allende. And they got his number two guy, and basically we, we sent our fighter jets down there to strafe the presidential palace because of the tin and copper mining interest that thought that, that Allende was going to national, nationalize yeah. all of the copper. Yeah. Which is probably wow. not true. Yeah. And so uh, in this movie 911, which talks about you know, the attacks in New York City, some Chileans were, were asked, you know, you know, how do you feel about you know, what happened in America? And they're going, we don't really have much sympathy for you guys because right. this guy, our guy Allende was a... And who, who replaced Allende? Pinochet. Pinochet, and he was put into power by the Chicago boys. So, and so that was much worse. that was Chile's, uh, or that was America's experiment on Chile to see um, how that would go. Well, unfortunately, we've been we've been hand in hand, we've been palsy walsy with with human rights abusers and and dictators, you know, for 150 years. And it started with the American Indians, and the Hawaiians were like next. You know, we just, oh, you never mind these guys. You know, we we've got the better idea for them. You know, we'll just take over. Yeah, we're gonna make it better. Them. Yeah. And we'll give them some smallpox-infected blankets and, you know, herd them off into some reservations after. You know, John Wayne is, is quoted as saying, they should be glad that we took care of their land for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I used to be an admirer. For, uh, for the Na- Indians. Native. For the Native Americans. Yeah, American Indians. Whoa, yeah. damn it, John Wayne. <laughs> but, you know, at, at the time, you know, back in the 30s and 40s, you know, not only was cigarette smoking supposed to be a manly thing, but also, you know, the viewpoint that, you know, we were helping Americans, the, the Indians out by, you know, shooting the buffalo out from underneath them and, and giving them disease-infected blankets and, and you know, wiping out their, their women and children. And it's like uh, the Bushmen in South Africa, same kind of thing. They were trying to help the, the Dutch and, you know, the Nigerian cow people. And they t- the, t- in the, in the, a couple of books that this fellow, um, Vanderpo- Lawrence Vanderpost, wrote, a very good writer, South African writer, talks about how basically the Bushmen, you know, were the original people, the Aboriginal people there, evolved about the same time as the Egyptians did. You know, some of the early groups of people that evolved, you know, maybe from yeah. the original, um, you know, Lucy-type critter, you know, in the old Gorge area. And and the, the Bushmen were just basically um, taken advantage of, you know, their women and children, guys, you know, kidnapped and turned into slaves and, and you know, blamed. And they're still being blamed, you know, for, oh, you know, the all these uh, the, the, the migratory animals it was, it's the Bushmen's fault you know that they, they've been they've been you know slaughtered and overhunted yeah. and stuff and in reality it was fencing and it was the you know the the, 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 the insurgent guys you know not necessarily the Dutch or the Boers or, or the Nigerian the cattle guys it was a, a, a number of different peoples that didn't care about you know how how, cor- how, how rough they so you know there are places in the world right where they're they've been colonialized and uh, for example, the continental United States, right? Where I'm not in touch with many Native Americans on a daily basis, right? So I don't see that atrocity and that pain on a day-to-day basis. No, it's been buried. It's been buried. Mm. On Hawaii, it's much more up close and personal. Oh, yeah. Right? Because... You drive through neighborhoods. It's not a very big place. It's not a very big place. Yeah, we're 2,000 miles away from anything else. How have you come to terms with um, that pain and suffering, having grown up here? Um, 
but trying to and, trying and, to make and, them feel that and, I not only respect them as human beings, you know, and I want to have them right. know, be part of my life if my life is worthwhile to them, uh, but also to let them feel that you know I, I very much and and am, am an admirer of of a lot of the good things they did know hundreds of years ago that the aquaculture and, and the family practices you know and the respect for you know when to fish and when not to fish and how to farm and what what waters to use you know they're coming down from the mountains and how to treat the ocean yeah to, you know read the signs and what does that look like on a, a daily basis for you being, being more sensitive to, to nature for one thing yeah being be, being sensitive to to people who have you know this this bitterness inside you know that they they perhaps don't know that they have and yeah and how to try to can you bring me into a situation that you've had where you um have had to take that mindset into the situation anything you can think of right now well you know going to a customer's house that i'm going to do the roof for and and have them be older folks you know and 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 there you can see the disappointment in in their faces about you know maybe how, how their kids are playing a lot of video games and kids are disrespectful of the older folks you know like to say the grandkids you know in particular and and trying this to is a hawaiian family that yeah, 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 yeah or or part part hawaiian, yeah, or hawaiian. and they, they still are very much cognizant you know of, of the values of the old ways yeah and and they're they're disappointed with the way that the young folks are are trying to you know be more uh <clears throat> prolific in, in the Western ways, you know, and are forgetting the sensitivity and the, the value and the recognizance of, of the harmonies of the old ways. And so I, I, I very much can see that with older folks, you know, and I don't, you know, I don't, because they are, are, are very sensitive, very aware people, you don't have to come out and go, oh, I feel your pain. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, you just, by your actions, you know, you, 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 you can, uh, uh, convey to them that that you value their their sense of of tradition their their sense of what is valuable and what will continue to be valuable no matter how much fault or all you know their grandkids try to foist on them you know the like you have the grandkids coming up and say oh grandma granddad i know you know these secrets about the old ways about how to farm and fish you know and the stars and all this and grandma and granddad will oftentimes say uh, I'm getting a little old. I forgot about them. No, you know, yeah, maybe, you know, I, I don't, don't bother me. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't remember any of the old stuff. When in reality, they're saying you ain't worth it, kid. You know, I mean, you can grow up a little bit more. Maybe come back right. if I'm still alive. <laughs> so, so basically, it's it's a, a sense of, of empathy, right? A, a sense of, wanting to, convey to them. You know, wanting to convince them but they don't need much convincing because you just uh, can show oftentimes by doing small stuff like weeding in their yard you know or bringing them little gifts you know like say you know some some smoked fish or something like that you know and, and sometimes it's just small gestures yeah you know showing an appreciation for the Hawaiian language you know instead of saying Aoli Pilikia which means no no problem you know or if they if they thank you for something you know like say if you've brought them a small gift or have done something for them, and they go, oh, mahalo nui, you know, and instead of saying aole pilakia, which is no trouble, which is kind of a coarse way of saying, yeah, yeah, it's nothing, you you tell them hemea iki, which is, iki is like, keiki is like the little one, iki is little. So hemea means it makes little, a little thing, which basically it's nothing, or, or figuratively, you're welcome. 
Right. And so, you know, I've, I've, I learned that from a lady in Kahuku. She said, oh, never mind, I'll eat pilakia. And I've, I've tried the, you know, the more uh, old Hawaiian style. Yeah, I can tell uh, you're diligent about constantly learning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if you ever think that, you know, you, the old saying is the more you know, the more you know, you don't know. When it's very true, you know, and if you have some sense of humility, which is very, very important, especially if your skin's a different color, you know, and you're in a different community that, you know, like, you know, down in the South Pacific, say, like in Fiji is a, a great example that the Fijian culture is like, if, you know, their tradition is like, you know, if somebody's been traveling along, you know, and they look, look like they could use a drink of water or something or a snack, you know, invite them into your house and oftentimes their entire week's worth of, of food they'll set out for you just because you happen to be walking by right and it doesn't matter if they, do, they don't they're not going to have anything to eat for the rest of the week because they they're observing tradition what are a few pieces of advice you would give surfers traveling to the north shore for vacation you know try to try not to drive a, a monster suv you know wherever you go and try not to you know, be be loud and obnoxious. You know, try to try to be a little low key. Try to remember, you know, just say, you know, the way that either your parents raised you if you were in a rural way. You know, just uh, you know the niceties of of human relationships. You know, just uh, like I say, you know, humility goes a long way. But also, you know, being observant, being courteous. You know, like say, opening a door for an older lady. You know, coming out of the store with a bunch of packages. Are offering you know small things, Boy Scout things, you know, thrifty, brave, loyal, kind, courteous, right. you know, all those things. You, when when somebody needs a compliment, you haul out the Boy Scout virtues. You know, <laughs> doesn't matter if they say, "Well, I'm going to get out my boots because this stuff's getting pretty thick here." <laughs> but you know, you don't care. You're having a good time. Right. Yeah. Right. So uh, the advice would be basically to, you know, try to. It's like advice for Americans anywhere traveling. You know, to try to try to do a little research. Do 15 minutes of reading you know on you know traditions or or the place the very place you're going to go to you know what what the traffic is like you know and basically don't don't have a big mindset don't be depending on your mind so much you know use the hawaiians valued uh, a sense of truth a sense of reality by a gut feeling so to them the the, the real truth came from the way you felt you know through your heart and soul right instead of your mind you know americans too, and western people in general they think a little bit too much through their mind and, and they're forgetting their feet so they trip you know stub your toes a little bit too much right the body is just a place to get the mind from yeah. place to place yeah yeah what are some of the greatest lessons your mother ever taught you uh well in this book, I don't think they're in this book, but maybe in Paddling My Own Canoe or one about Molokai. Well, you mind just giving a quick background yeah, yeah. on your mother? Well, yeah, she's, uh, she was raised in California by her, her mom was an outdoors woman, you know, chop your own wood. You know, they had a cabin up in the mountains behind Los Angeles, uh, Lake Arrowhead, San Bernardino Mountains, uh, San Gregorio. Uh, her dad, mom's dad, my grandfather, was a, a county commissioner for San Bernardino uh, County, I think. And um, so mom was a you know tomboy climbing trees, and she was in at UCLA when she was 16 years old, and was a swimmer. And uh, so some of the things we learned were appreciation because there was no television out here back then. Appreciation for for music, and uh, you know, being able to you know handle 
basic mechanics you know be able to uh, be able to change a diaper or change a tire hold an intelligent conversation you know with an adult you know by the time you're 12 or 14 years old and maybe one of the biggest things is initiative seeing something that needs to be done and not have to be told to do it and not look for a bunch of credit you know when you got it done so i would say um basically to be practical about your own abilities you know uh, when we were like the time we were like seven or eight years old she'd let us go out in the ocean by herself and you hey, you know i taught you pretty well already you know it's okay you know if you get into trouble you'll probably be all right what but beaches would you go in up front here you know or down to Haleiwa, just some of the local you know nothing big and did so. any of these waves have names uh yeah, when you're growing up chun's reef but actually the chun family used to come down here from a place a half mile up the street so it was a it was a it was basically a misname and the chun family didn't actually live here they lived a half mile up the street they just spent a lot of time at the yeah, beach there yeah yeah so surfers just went well i heard that and et cetera, et cetera. and so well thump. the chun family are there, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah so a lot and did jockos have a wave or did jockos have a name no bef- before like 1980 which is when leash started leashes started coming and people started surfing it more uh, Greg Knoll would say if the sunset wasn't any good, they were first coming out to the North Shore in the late 50s, and they'd come by the house, you know, and, and one of Greg's favorite stories, well, one thing he mentioned when he was up on stage at the Surfer Film Festival thing at the Academy of Arts, was, uh, yeah, I knew Jock when he was crapping his diapers, you know, and, he, and I was already, you know, it was, it's untrue, you know, because I was already <laughs> seven, eight years old, but I worked for him for a little while, and I loved the man, you know, great guy, you know, you know, He's, he's full of himself, but, you know, he's not, he's, he's very empathetic to the Hawaiians, you know, because they, they, they helped him, you know, and surf in some breaks, you know, show him. They, they kind of took him under their wing when he was a young man. Mom. He was much thinner. <laughs> but uh, he's uh, a, uh, he's the a most, he is the most entertaining force at the Big oh, Wave yeah. Awards. Oh, that's yeah. for sure. Oh, he still comes to the, the Oh, big yeah. Wave? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the triple XL awards ceremony thingy, the, the billabong thing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, every year the organizers have. they have in Los Angeles in in Anaheim, and every year the organizers have to tell him to mellow it down, tone it down a little bit. And every year he comes out with the most crude, amazing joke, and it'll be like so. So it'll be some like heartfelt story about his friend who had. So this last year he told us the story. <laughs> about his friend who has throat cancer and he had the whole audience like silent he's like and it turned out it was because his throat was full of hair because he was eating too much pussy (laughs) and the whole surfing world's just like yeah greg go for it anyway i've never met the man but i would love him to have him on the show at some point he used to at parties back in the 60s say 66 67 you know, even 65 he used to he used to play the game where you bang knuckles yeah where you yeah yeah yeah, 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 where, yeah where i put yeah. my knuckle yeah, yeah, on yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. exactly yeah it's a speed thing yeah he, he would just beat you know you'd be drinking a lot first and 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 poor guys that they'd be trying to <laughs> right be so trying you, to get you put the two knuckles ahead yeah. and, and then one yeah. tries yeah, yeah, to get yeah, yeah, it okay. and, as, and as long it's like slapping as long the as, hands. You can, as long as you can clip them yeah then you, you gotta put it back up there again he just beat these poor people but i was pretty fast you know so i'd get him <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> You know, so, but he was a great guy. He was a great guy. You know, I, I liked him very much. And he was part of the original group of guys that first started because back in the 40s, uh, a couple of guys 
um, Woody Brown and, and Dickie Cross um, d- uh, got into real bad trouble. Dickie Cross, you know, never was found again. You know, when they were paddling out here and the surf came up, a real famous story back in 47 or something, or maybe earlier. So North Shore was kind of semi-taboo, you know, for maybe six, eight years, even though Georgie Downing, you know, and Wally, you know, they'd come out now and then. But uh, it can come up really, really fast. Oh, yeah. Really fast in the space of, like, one set, you know, 10 minutes, five, 10 minutes, bing, 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 you know. Yeah. Swell's here. Hello. Yeah. You know, and if you're too far out. The waves arrive (laughs) significantly faster here than they do in California. That is one of the main things that I notice whenever I travel here. California, it takes a little time. The swells start happening Picking up here. More, yeah, yeah. yeah, here, the difference between one set and the next set is yeah. swells here. And it comes from, oh, this is fun to, holy shit. Yeah, it's no right. longer fun. Let me it's no longer here. fun. Yeah. 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 And cool, cool, cool. Exactly. But I, I remember uh, about two, three years ago, Kalohi Bloomfield, lifeguard over here, very good surfer, about Gavin's age. And uh, this is your son, Gavin. Yeah, my yeah. son, my younger guy. And uh, uh, I, we knew the surf was going to come up, and we knew it was going to be fairly good size. But we figured, oh, maybe you know we can catch it on the way up. And I drove home from work in about in the middle of the day, maybe one, two o'clock, and I saw a six, six foot set come around the point over here. And I go, okay, you know, it looks like it's starting to show. And I r- dro- drove drove in, parked, grabbed my board, uh, ran out to the front yard, and here's an eight foot set coming in. So I went, okay, okay, I know, I know, it's getting bigger. Jump in the water because it had real good shape, and I start paddling out in the channel. And Chloe's paddling out with me, and we're like halfway out the channel, and a closeout set comes in, and we're going, "Whoa, you know that that's something," and we're going, "Gee, I hope that's not it," but that was it. It it just went it staircased in a matter of twenty minutes from like six feet to twelve to closing out. Yeah, and we're just going, "Oh, oh well." Just turn, we had to turn around and come in. Never caught a wave. I do want to get back to your mom because she was oh, yeah, quite yeah. the water woman. Yeah. I need to I need to get at least some sort of comprehensive yeah. story on her and her influence on you. Well, because my dad was out to sea so much and because maybe, you know, he wasn't as attentive a dad, you know, she, mom felt, okay, you know, your kids, once my younger brother, who was the youngest of the family, got to be like 11, 12 years old. She, um, because she had flown over, uh, flown over the north side of Molokai one time, and she really liked the outdoors. Um, she um, f- flew over there one time, I think, with my older sister and maybe my cousin, and they dropped her off at the East End. And so she swam like ten miles, towing a pack uh, from like Halava Valley on the East End to Kalapapa. And uh, you know, it, it was fairly rough water, but it, it, she was happy about it because she was you know pushing the envelope and you know doing what she likes swimming and you know being out there in the wild and uh, uh t- to us you know we were n- we weren't you know worried that she was never going to come back you know because we know that she was a very capable woman and everything she used to swim from Waimea Bay down to here you know not regularly but you know now and then you know and in her in her uh, one of her journals uh, uh when we first were here in the 50s 1954 or so that uh uh, we were here in August. We came in August, right before the school year started, and in September or October started to come up. You know, and she's going, "Gee, you know, it's closed out. You know, you know, there's white water up from here all the way over to the next point. You know, I wonder if I should go out and try and surf swimming in the rip. You know, but she, because she was very capable woman, but maybe she was married too young. You know, she had four of us kids, and actually there was one stillborn, so she actually had had five kids, five of us. I would have had an older brother. I would have might, might have been named Tom, Dick, or Harry, you know, instead of Jock. He might have had been the Jock. 
but uh, in Scottish, uh, Jock means little John. My dad, because my dad's name was John. The diminutive form in Scottish of John is Jock. So, in a lot of Commonwealth countries, Australia, New Zealand, you know, uh, Scotland, there's a lot of Jocks. You can a friend of mine from New Zealand said, "Yeah, you could shout down any manhole and go Jock." You know. Do you know where they got? Do you know? Do you know where they got your name from? Um. Maybe a little bit of history, or there, yeah. you know, there was other people, other jocks, and there was a famous football coach in the University of Pittsburgh, you know, named named Jock Sutherland. Yeah. But uh, you know, my dad was John, and yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and at first, yeah. my nickname was Bo, you know, and then yeah, huh. we'll call him Jock. Yeah. Know? Even though on my driver's license it says John, and if somebody makes out a check to to Jock, you know, and I go to the wrong bank, they're going, "Huh? Who's this? This is not." So license. on your license plate, it, or it on your, John. it says John. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. So Jock yeah. was a nickname. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, but uh, you know, hardly anybody knows me. Better than John the Second. We could, I could have been surfing John the Second all day <laughs> I, today. I, I kind of doubt it, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes for <laughs> makes for a good aside. Like John First Reef, John Second Reef. Yeah, John Third yeah, Reef. Yeah, yeah. I could be like outside Jockos. Yeah, Johnny, <laughs> Johnny's Rocks or something like that. You know, she. But so she was a very strong. Thank God, Jock has a much a much better ring to it. I'm like, yeah. I'm gonna go surf Jock. Yeah, it's, it's a handy name to the, the surf yeah. magazines. They were go, oh, you know, it's a catchy name. You yeah, know? good two syllable word. Yeah, yeah. Jocko. All right, yeah, yeah, yeah we're gonna yeah. go. Yeah, some people but, when I when I tell them my name over the phone, they go, Jock, and go, yeah, Jocko. You know, because <laughs> at first they go, Josh, Jack. You know, Joe. You know, no, Jock. Or they'll try to soften the J and they'll go, oh, the French one, like Jacques. And I go, no, it's got, it's a hard J, please, you know. But so mom, mom was a, a great influence on us. Like probably all of us four kids felt, you know, because when you're raised by a woman who's, you know, holding stuff inside that, that you know, you empathize with that, but, but then you because you feel you know you haven't maybe been nurtured as much as you you know like if there's no father figure in the, in the household from the time you know like I was 11 12 years old dad was pretty much gone you know mom divorced him you know a couple of years later when I was like 13 14 years old and so he wasn't in our life and so because she was raising us and she was a working woman you know we were forced to cook for, for ourselves which wasn't a bad thing but um, you know she was an excellent cook herself but because we you know we were a little bit defensive, you know, later on as we grew up that maybe, you know, it was her fault, you know, that we were having these hard times, you know, and all this. Yeah. But so really you're hard awesome. on her for a time? Well, as you know, teenagers we're, we're, are. Yeah, you know, we, we were, you know, we were not applying ourselves in school maybe as much, even though all of us were pretty smart kids yeah. because we were encouraged to read, you know, appreciate music, you know, be, try to be, one of her favorite sayings was it doesn't matter if you're, if you're fat, bald, and ugly, you know, and, and over 40 years old, if you can dance, you're fine. Because <laughs> she didn't love to dance, you know. She's she, she was a romantic woman, but because that sense of romance had been stifled by having to care for four kids, because she was a very capable, very very beautiful woman when she was younger, kind of an Esther Williams, kind of a young Kate Hepburn, kind of a a real classic American beauty kind of a, a woman, and we as kids, you know, appreciated, you know, but not. You know, kids, you know, well, you know, I, I've learned this, you know, I've, I've been taught to do this, but there's these other things that I wish, you know, and so, you know, it's easy to blame but somebody But you learned else. how to dance and to read, so you're 90% of the way there. 
Yeah, and, and, and appreciate good music and, and appreciate, um, you know, being able to, you know, be capable in the ocean and be capable in the mountains and, you know, and, and have an empathy for people that, you know, needed your help, you know, try to recognize, you know, how you could go out. And so she, she was an outgoing woman, you know, she's a very capable woman. And she, t- she, she taught us, she, you know, to, to not give her credit. It would, would be a very stupid thing to do as, as one of her kids, you know, and, and, but all four of us, you know, we have our own misgivings about me, right. even though they might not be conscious, you know, it's not like, well, it's her fault that, you know, we don't, we can't do this or, you know, she didn't right. t- teach us that. Not, well, no. What is she most famous for? Her, her outdoorsmanship, you know, the, the swimming, even though there's What people, were some of the biggest swims? Well, like on Molokai. You know, swimming, towing a pack for like 10 miles, but not all at, all at once. She would swim and camp out. But probably in this book, it describes her um, kayaking probably 8,000 miles in southeast Alaska, mostly by herself, uh, over a period of fif- 12 or 15 summers. You know, even when she was like 85 years old, she's still up there. So she was kayaking up until she was pretty old. Wow. But uh, probably the strongest thing that she gave us was an appreciation of of the outdoors and how to how to enjoy it you know how to you know push the envelope a little bit but kayaks not, but are an amazing contraption to be able to see the outdoors they they are but an inflatable is tough because you're at the mercy of the wind especially the older kayaks that she had uh you ever hear of george dyson never heard of george dyson okay. who is that He's a he's a he's a fellow from the Pacific Northwest, maybe British Columbia area, lived up in uh, like 60 or 80 feet up in a in a big old uh, cedar or spruce tree. But um, his dad was a, uh, a nuclear physicist. Uh, but Dyson took the design of a um, Aleutian sealskin kayak and and used modern materials. Basically, he's he's a a sailor and a boatman and an outdoors woman who um, perfected this, this um, way of, of, of using modern materials, uh, uh, copying the, the ancient Aleutian uh, sealskin kayak that they used for you know, the, the otter trade wow. when the Russians helped them. And, and he would use aluminum, fr- aluminum tube framing. I've got the book uh, that he wrote called Bidarka, which is the Aleut name for the, that kayak. And he um, used all these modern materials and he would make like a, a big, Twin hulled, you know, four sail, four uh, four sail like a six or eight man kayak, or he'd make beautiful small kayaks, you know, for touring. But um, I'll show you the book one time. I'll check it out. Days, but have you ever <clears throat> been up to Alaska to see some of the just places? once? She, she took me about uh, eight years ago. Wow, nine years ago, up there on a trip with her, and it was great because. We got to do fishing. We got some see some of the places, the hot spring places, and we went in an old fish trawler named the uh, Home Shore out of Bellingham, Washington. And uh, it had it was a converted trawler, but, but it was able to use the winch to to bring some kayaks over, so you could go on little day trips and stuff. And we got to catch some lingcod and some halibut, and um, even uh, some deep water shrimp which are really, really, really good. Is your mom still alive? No. She's she, not? Two years ago, as a matter of fact. I think she died on the 22nd of February, two years ago. So uh, her the anniversary of her death just, just passed by, and um, we have her ashes here in a con- container because she, get, she gave her, her, she donated her body to the UH uh, 
Willed Body Program. What's that? Where the medical the medical school takes takes your body and dissects it to see you know what it, what uh, the stresses you went through or right. say if you all had Alzheimer's, what gotcha. your brain looked like. Um, what a cool experience to be able to go up there with her while she oh, was yeah. still alive. So yeah, now, and that was only eight years ago. Yeah. Wow. And how old was how old uh, was she when she passed away? Ninety four. So she was eighty six at the time. Wait, no. If it was eight years ago, and she died two years ago, so she was about eighty four. Wow. Yeah. What were some of the the um, big things that you remember from that trip? Well, just. You know her her sense of enjoyment being up in her you know her stomping grounds kind of her second stomping grounds and uh, how the the guys on board you know really deferred to her you know as far as you know we saw we saw bears and we got to go up to this place to where the local Indians kind of shunned because it was a very uh, un, an unstable area called Latuya Bay and it's shaped like a whale it's like a five mile long bay but it had been very uh, prone to earthquakes and seismic waves and mom knew a guy that back in 1956 or 58 um, was in Latuya Bay when there was a huge um, maybe an earthquake or a landslide um, that that um, at the back of the bay this five mile long bay that displaced a ton of just thousands of tons of, of dirt from the cliff and it created a wave that was probably a hundred feet high and this guy that she knew this guy named Howard Ulrich uh, from this book called The Land of the Ocean Mess and, and he describes it being on on his boat with his son and, and hearing this big noise at the back of the bay and he's out you know four miles away and he hears this and the, and the, the, the wave that came started coming down Latuya Bay it, there was an island in the middle called Sanataf Island and there's still you know you can still see um, it ran over Sanitaf Island, and so by the time it got to him, and the wave is still like 50 feet tall or so, and it's picked up his boat, and, and he's trying to yank up on, on the anchor chain, but the anchor chain's stuck, and so the, the wave picks up his, his boat, with his son and him in it, and it carries it out, and over the, the spit, there's a, a very narrow opening at the front of the bay, and uh, there was two other boats in there with him, and one boat just got demolished all the heck because they made it towards the right to the opening of, of the bay which is the worst place to be because that's where the, the wave convert but up on the sides of the bay you can still you, we could still see and this was let's see 58 um, 50 years later we could still see where the wave had had torn off the trees up to 1700 feet and you could still see the difference in the color of the Whoa. the new growth to the growth up above so it was a huge wave a huge displacement on earth in the back but the Indians knew this because it had happened before so they, they, they did they didn't hang around that place too much so it already had a reputation but being in the bay you know there's glaciers in the back you know it's kind of a you know you're, you're back you know knowing that it could happen you know yeah any second you know you kind of oh what a wild know, experience yeah. but um you know going up to the glacier you know and, yeah and some of the glacier bits were actually in in the bay and because it was such compressed such pure ice that we put a couple of the bergy bits they call them that the skipper did and they, they, they didn't melt like all day long you know the air temperature is like you know like 55 or 60 degrees but still yet you know it was a real, a, a, a real experience and the sh shrimp that we caught with some of the traps was so good that we had it for three meals in a row you know prepared a different way you know but shrimp three different ways in, in one day but 
So, so that, w- that was great being with her on the trip. Your mom has obviously taught you a lot. Yeah. What would you like to teach the younger generation of today? If you could sit down with a small class of intelligent and curious kids. Kind of like what I do for Dwayne DeSoto. Actually, she came to one of our our. our some our classes wow. here in Haleiwa about six years ago and they actually they got her in a canoe and they said oh do you want to paddle yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was great you know and and the guys some of the volunteers you know the older people that knew her reputation you know they deferred to her and they're very very gracious you know and I got a couple pictures still you know when she was you know the, the mind was already starting to go but the instinct you know about oh there's kids here, you know, and there's canoes and there's people that appreciate, you know, the ocean and safety and, you know, each other. That's beautiful. Yeah, it was. So what would you like to teach to the younger generation? Same stuff that she taught, basically, you know, uh, ocean safety. Yeah. Like um, Gavin um, was in one of the very first junior lifeguard classes out here and that his uncle, Mark Cunningham, uh, helped run. And... Uh, uh, so Gavin knows, you know, uh, you know, cause both, both my, my boys were around, you know, for many years when mom was still alive, you know, and they, I go, Hey, you know, mommy's sitting here at the table with us. And, and I go, Gavin, go give her a neck rub, you know? And he's going, Oh, oh same show. Cause you know, after kayaking 8,000 miles, you're going to have some shoulders. Oh yeah. So she was a strong woman, you know? We used to give her foot rubs, you know, when she'd come home from the office and stuff, and or neck rubs, you know, whatever, you know, because you know you weren't you're not rich, and for Christmas sometimes, you know, besides you know a couple of little things, you give her a certificate for ten free foot rubs or something, you know. So, yeah. You know, you did what you could. You know, you, you helped her on the house, you helped with the yard, you know, you helped try to bring in some food, you learned how to cook, you tried to make her proud if you could, instead of pissed off, you know, I didn't do your homework, you know, or you beat up on your little sister, damn, you know. I'm getting the belt out. Okay, bend over. Confound it. <laughs> oh, man. What a glorious and inspiring outlook that you have on life. I am truly honored to have met you. Fantastic stories. Seriously. Well, it's, it's part of the way I was raised and the people that took me under their wing, you know, and so when people go, oh, Legend, like, yeah, yeah, fine, that's fine, you know, but uh, I, it does. I don't wear it well, and the people that 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 help me, you know, appreciate being able to ride in big surf and and uh, showed me the lineups and stuff. These are the people whose shoulder I stood on, and these are the people's, these are these are the men and women that I admire and I will continue to admire, and um, these are some of the things they taught me, and uh, now that I'm seeing them dying, it. it it uh, very much behooves me, very much pleases me to be able to communicate to other people yeah. and show them, you know, um, what the, what the good stuff is that yeah. that, that, I, that I learned from them. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. That's our show, everyone. I'm going to play you out with a song called "Born for Someone." by Kevin Kraft and the Crafters. I will link to their band page on my website, kyle.surf slash podcast. I'm now doing a monthly email where once a month I get together the best articles I've been reading, the best documentaries I've been watching, 
the best podcasts I've been listening to, and I send it out once a month. So if you want to get that email, head over to the website, kyle.surf, and sign up. All right, get out in the water today, and I'll see you soon. Coming through oh.